This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Mike. Hey, Gina. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Ages and Icons. I'm Mike Crisologo. And I'm Gina Bucci. So we're going to talk about Rick Mercer, who we uh, interviewed recently for his new book. Yeah, the, the crown prince of Canadian comedy. The prince? Prince, yeah, yeah. I can't even say it. See, this is why... That's why he's Rick Mercer and I am who I am. Rick Mercer's a funny guy. It was good. Yeah, Rick Mercer. He did, uh, of course, the Rick Mercer report that everybody knows mm-hmm. him from, uh, formerly on uh, This Hour's 22 Minutes and everything. And uh, he he's written a number of books over the years. And after signing off this year for the Rick Mercer report after 15 seasons, mm-hmm. he has uh, his final book out, presumably, about the Rick Mercer report, at least. It's called The Final Report. It's called Final Report. So mm-hmm. ominous. Rick Mercer, Final Report. And uh, yeah, we got to sit down and talk to him about it. It's um, it's a really funny read. It's sort of a, a collection of all his rants from over the years. He's, he said that he basically, when he writes a rant, because I mean, it's his trademark, right? Walking through the, the graffiti alley. He would write them in like seven pages long, and then he has to cut them down to a page for the show. Yeah. So in the book, it is the page long version. You're right, uh, right. So it's not the longer, but he also does include... Um, some reflections. So in between ra- some of the rants, there will be reflections looking back on certain uh, people that he had on the show or different experiences oh. he had on the show. He has like kind of mini essays talking about, for example, one of them about the story behind getting Pierre Burton to show up on the show and teach people how to roll a joint or uh, the, the guys that he traveled Necessary with his crew. skills, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Working with Jan Arden, oh, you know, yeah. who everybody loves, and, and he and Jan. They've are, done a lot of segments oh, together. God. And they're good friends, and they're yeah. also hilarious uh, sort of uh, playing off each other. So, yeah, so it's not just the rants in the book, Gina's right. There's also longer pieces talking, so a little bit taking you behind the scenes, which, I mean, he said that in the interview, too, that, you know, when... If, when you sit around, like if someone like him is sitting around talking to people and they they talk about their favorite experiences, he's not talking about the stuff you saw on the screen. He's talking about the stuff that happened behind the scenes that nobody got to see because often it's funnier and, and wackier. Kind of, do you find that here with us, Gina, that the stuff behind the scenes is funnier and wackier? I don't know. Uh, yeah, especially when I'm cold medication, when I'm on cold <laughs> medication, which I am currently on. So uh, my apologies for sounding a little loopy. But um, yeah, and he was also talking about he was telling us how Jan Arden's got a new show coming out, right? But was that, I can't remember if that's uh, in the interview, the official interview, or was that after? Oh, that's maybe one of the stories we was, talk about yeah, uh, what we talked when about. we write our book, uh, yeah. Final Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that and the time you smashed your face off the, <laughs> the microphone and got a concussion. I do it all the time. I hit my head again today, by the way. I forgot to tell you. That was a doozy as well. <laughs> if anything ever goes wrong with one of these podcasts when you listen to it, it's probably because Gina banged her head and right. something got messed up. So before my head trauma kicks in again for today, I... Uh, I should do a little housekeeping. Uh, follow us on uh, everythingzoomer.com where you can find lots of great writings uh, from Mike and other uh, writers and editors at uh, Zoomer Magazine, as well as the videos that I produce. And uh, this Ages and Icons podcast, of course. You can also uh, subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now we're on Spotify. So uh, please check mm-hmm. us out. All right, Mike, without further ado, let's get to your interview with Rick Mercer. Absolutely. You mentioned in the story how people keep asking you about retiring, about how it feels to yeah. be retired, and you're like, I'm not actually retired. Yeah. So, like, I guess... I'm it is odd that people ask me how retirement is, because I left a job before 
and no one asked me how retirement was. <laughs> yeah. They just said, what are you going to do next? Now they just assume I'm retired. But <laughs> a part of me likes that idea. I mean, wouldn't it be great? But I'm not retired. So, so how have you been keeping busy since we last saw you? Well, and, I, you I have this book coming out, lo and behold. Uh, I always perform live, so I've, I've carried on doing that. I'm building a cabin. And so, or it's kind of built, but you know, anytime you build anything, uh, I've learned it's never done. There's always, <laughs> there's always figuring to be done. Like, where's the barbecue pit go? Hmm. Should so, we get sods or seed? Hmm. <laughs> there's always things that I have to be making Are you build executive like, decisions on. No, I'm not. You're not, you're not like you with the hammer and nails? No, or, I no. liked how you mined the hammer. That was very impressive. <laughs> you can tell I don't Clearly build many cabins either. <laughs> I don't think it's quite like that. No, no. I'm more the brains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the numerous mistakes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, there's a bit in the piece in Zoomer about your father being in his 80s and that he had retired early mm -hmm. from his own job and now he's doing all these acting and, and writing a children's book and volunteering. And w was any of that sensibility figured into your decision to leave? No, no. my father did do an incredible amount of things uh, since retirement, but uh, it, didn't, it didn't impact my decision to step away from the show at all because I'm not retired. Of course, yes. <laughs> but I will say that I'm not afraid of the notion of leaving your job because I watched my father do it and it was the best thing he ever did and he ended up doing so many more interesting things as time went on. Also, he was able to do things that... Uh, he couldn't have done before when he was supporting a family and, right. and the paycheck was so important and so you reach a point in your life where you could do something like I'm not going to write a children's book but my father did because mm -hmm. he wanted to and uh, I doubt it paid the rent <laughs> but he just did it because he wanted to so uh, I like that notion obviously yeah now I gotta ask you obviously about uh, final report because I mean, it's a big thing to say these are the greatest rants in the, the 15 years of, of the Rick Mercer Report. So I'm curious how you sort of determined which ones were the best and that you wanted to... Well, I, I worked with an editor, Tim Rostron, who's edited all my books here at the publisher, and uh, I trust him. And, and so his opinion went a long way because I thought it, it's better to have someone who uh, has the, uh, an outside view of the rants versus myself, who may be colored by right. all sorts of different issues. Um, but I, I was very pleased with it. I, I, I'm pleased with it. It's like a bit of a, I mean, the rants, so many of the rants are about that moment in time, right. about that week, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and a month later, they may, the context may have changed, but they're very much about that week. So I, I like looking back at them, and there's times where, I was looking at the rants and going, I, I, I forgot that happened. Gosh, I'm so angry now again, thinking about that. <laughs> not that all the rants are from an angry place. Right. They're not. But uh, it, it, I really enjoyed that whole process, going back and choosing the rants. Yeah. And there's a great mix. You know, you talk about, obviously, politics and such, but then you have stuff like elevators and escalators. And yeah, we would call yeah. certain rants uh, evergreen. Yeah meaning that they could go any time. And that would be a perfect example of how Canadians don't know how to get on and off elevators. Absolutely. And you know, that's, a, that's as, as relevant today as it was when it was written. Sadly, it was written. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We haven't moved the goalpost, no. Now, did, you, did anything sort of maybe become apparent to you when you were looking back over some of your older rants uh, that maybe, you know, new perspectives on these issues that you hadn't really noticed at the time? My perspective always changes. I think 
one of the problems with politics today and ideology is people just become so, so locked in. Like they have their team, they're just locked in, they don't care uh, that they, their opinions don't change and that's a really bad thing. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that my opinions change yeah. over the years and that uh, that's just, I just think that that's, that's a natural thing to have occur. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I want I want to come back to that um, because I mean, obviously, you're a huge politics buff, but satire and and political humor these days it's it's a very different. It feels like it's a very different um, political landscape. Like you said, mm -hmm. everybody. It, it's not so much about I don't like this politician's policy on that tax idea, but it's like it, it's like more personal now. People are taking it very like to heart, mm -hmm. and like you said, they won't budge. So the idea of political satire today. I mean, is it is it a what is its place? I guess uh, today. I, you know, I'm loath to kind of weigh in on that subject because my instinct is telling me now. The problem is, I I think more than ever people are preaching to the choir, and that's not because the satirists want to do that or mm -hmm. the writers want to do that. It's just the function of the times. People, if they believe a certain thing, if they ha if they have a certain point of view, they they. You know, they pick what entertainment they're going to watch, what shows they're going to watch, and everything will just reflect their worldview. You know, there was a time when everyone watched Walter Cronkite. So if Walter Cronkite said something, people would go, oh, Walter thinks this. Now that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Pe I think that, uh, you know, Donald Trump is taking all of the oxygen out of the room. But I would be surprised if there's many Trump voters that are watching Saturday Night Live. I just don't think they are, which is once upon a time, everyone of a certain generation right. watched. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and I don't want that to come out as a criticism of, of those shows, because I think they're doing phenomenal work under very difficult circumstances, because how do you respond to something like Donald Trump when 24 hours after you responded to a huge story, there's another huge story, and then there's yeah. another one. By the time you get your column written, or your piece on television, or on the internet, or wherever, it seems like it's six months old and it's only 72 hours old. Right. No, absolutely. And I mean, I was looking at, for example, you in bed uh, with Prime Minister Harper and like the sort of him reading you a bedtime story. And, and it's funny, but with uh, so it seems these days somebody like if you did that with Donald Trump, people see that as an endorsement of Trump and his policies and, and such. And like, how could you do oh, that sure. with somebody who would lock up children at the border? So, I mean, I, I don't know if yeah. just from a comedian's point of view, if, if you have to take a different tack. Well, I... I you know, that's almost a valid criticism because I, over the years, one of the, uh, one of the ways in, a, in which I changed was I stopped doing that. I stopped having politicians on the show. I always believed it was a mutually parasitic relationship. We both benefited. Yeah. But then at a certain point, I thought, you know what, they're benefiting a bit more or a bit too much. And that's not my job. My job is not to do PR for these people. Yeah. Also, I think that my, uh, I might have many skills but one of them is I can take someone who's never been on television before and uh, probably never will be on TV before spend time with them doing whatever it is that they're doing that I think is interesting and make them look like a rock star make them look great and uh, I think that's a great I'm very proud of the fact that I did that so many times but you know with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> so when you're doing that for a, a prime minister you're kind of going really is this what I should be doing right. making this guy look this nice or whatever. So I just stopped talking to politicians, by and large. There was always exceptions. 
you know, but uh, once upon a time it was my bread and butter and then it became the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. And I know you mentioned uh, in the book about how important rants were to you and, and they were, they've been a passion your whole life. Sure. So now that uh, you've got the book out and you're no longer doing the, the show, do you go through something of a rant withdrawal? Like, do you just no, rant because, at home? Like, no, I don't go through a rant <laughs> withdrawal because I can just rant at home or rant on the telephone with someone. Um, the difference is, the way a rant is created is I would essentially create a, a six, seven pages of, yeah. of what I thought my personal reaction to a certain situation or, and then I would distill it, distill it, distill it, bring it down, bring it down and try to, uh, you know, successfully illustrate an idea or a concept and a point of view inside of like a minute, 20 seconds. Yeah. And, uh, I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> now I can just get you on the phone and go, hey, can you believe blah, 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 blah. And we get the seven-page version. You get the seven-page version now. Yeah. So I'm sure some of my friends are like, I liked you better when you could just wrap it up in a minute 20. I wish more people would do that. It, it, like sometimes it's difficult distilling an idea down, but mm -hmm. communicating a big idea in a minute 20 is, it's like a good skill to have. It's a very good skill to have. And it dawned on me this week, I was watching, you know, there's all this debate around the, the carbon tax and there's some provinces opting out. And there's rally, Doug Ford wants rallies against this tax and then the, the federal government is trying to communicate, you know, what it is. And I thought, has it ever dawned on the liberals that really at some point they should really sit down and figure out a way to explain what this is in a minute 30? Because they haven't done it. Yeah. It's like it hasn't even crossed their mind. <laughs> like I'm sure they'd say, well, actually, here's a giant explanation of what it is. Yeah. Now, it, it sort of dawned on me yesterday when I was, I was reading through the book, but also watching some of the rants, and some of the same rants that are in the book, and it feels like there's a bit of a different sensibility if, if you're someone who's used to watching you, walking through the alley and, and ranting, compared to reading it. Mm -hmm. And do you, f do you feel that way or find that, that when you read the words, it, it might be a different, uh, come off differently than when you're seeing? I think because I've been on TV for a long time, I think that the, the 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 reader might kind of hear my voice, right? Whereas if someone wasn't familiar with my delivery, it m would be a different experience. But uh, I did the audio book, and mm -hmm. I chose to read the rants versus then use the audio from the rants from the oh, okay. uh, alley because I think that there was a certain immediacy in the rant that it would appear in the TV show for a minute 30 out of 22 minutes that uh, you don't need when you're reading the book. Right. It can't be 200 and odd pages. Of, uh, <laughs> can't all be like that. <laughs> Gotta bring it down a little bit. Right. Yeah. And another, another thing, and we were just talking about this off air, about the book that I really love was your sort of reminiscences and reflections on the past. And you have some really beautiful uh, things in here about travel and, and the crew that you traveled with, about working with Jan Arden, uh, meeting Norman Jewison and working with him and, and Pierre Burton and stuff. I mean, those are all sort of like pinch me moments, I'm, I'm sure, mm -hmm. for yourself. But when, when you look back on your career, what are some of those moments that you're just like, I can't believe I got to do this? Oh, there was a, you know, there's been a bunch. I mean, I've been really, really lucky. You know, horseshoes. I mean, there's just been certain opportunities, like zero gravity. Right. Like, I wanted to experience zero gravity ever since I saw that film in like grade six 
we watched this film of astronauts in zero gravity. And I was like, that's the most exciting thing ever. And then I kind of figured out, oh no, actually the only people who can experience that are astronauts yeah. or people who are training to be astronauts. Right. And so, but I got to do it. Uh, you know, I had a tremendous backstage pass for 15 years. Right. And our access was such that if there was anything really I wanted to do in the country, I could just say, you know, Tom, let's see if I can. And then he'd come back and say, I called them and they said, yes, you can come right over. And tremendous access over the years. So there's been tons of times. You know, my brother is a commercial airline pilot. When we were growing up, you know, he loved the snowbirds. and He became a pilot. I didn't care about the snowbirds and, you know, whatever. And then one of the first shoots on the show, I got to call him up and say, guess what I'm doing today? I'm flying with the snowbirds. He's like, you don't deserve to fly with the snowbirds. You made fun of them. Yeah, fighter jets, I've done it all. Yeah. And I've driven everything. I mean, there's lots of stuff, too, that would be on many people's bucket list. Right. That were never on mine, but I did them anyway. I actually met a fellow on a plane. I have to be careful because... He might recognize himself, but I, I met a fellow on a plane one time, and, and he was talking, and he just volunteered that he had a uh, essentially a near-death experience, okay. and he didn't have. It wasn't that he was looking at life differently. As a result of that, he realized he didn't have a lot of time left, so maybe two or three years or something, and he had actually cashed out, did the whole thing, and he was working through a bucket list. He had a list of things he wanted to do before he died which was kind of fascinating because everyone knows the concept of a bucket list, but I never actually met someone who actually had one yeah. and was going out and doing it. And so he started telling me what was on his bucket list. And every single thing he would say, I would say, oh, you have to do that. Yeah, it's great fun. You'll love it. Blah, blah, blah. And then the second thing, oh, my God, yes, you got to do it. You know where I did it. Blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, shut up, Rick. You've done everything on this man's bucket list. You didn't even want to, and you've done it. So then... I quickly started going, that sounds like fun. Yeah, I'd love to do that someday. <laughs> I've done it twice, three times. Yeah. So there was, there's tons of moments like that. Which begs the question, is there anything that you wanted to do but, but haven't had a chance to do yet? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> well, I never got to hang out with Neil Young. I always thought that would be fun. I don't know if it would make for good television, but I always thought, yeah, I, I'd try to get something out of it. Um, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I've never been one of those people. So uh, there's nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to do it all again is what I want to do. Right. Like, I want to make sure that I get above the tree line again, and I want to explore Haida Gwaii. There's so many places in the country I want to explore, but properly this time, because even though I got to see a lot of the country, I also got to see a uh, you know, Cole's notes of many of these places. Yes, I've been to X, Y, or Z, but sometimes it was for 24 hours. Right. So that's not really exploring it. Right. And, um, I mean, do you miss having that opportunity to go out and, and film this sort of stuff and perform and, and have these experiences for a national audience? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I miss obviously having a show. Like, when you have a show, yeah. I mean, my entire life I wanted a show, and really, you have your own show, there's nothing better, especially right. if it's a big show. Like, there's, you can, I mean, we had very uh, few limitations. Because we were such a, an efficient show, there was only ever four of us on the road, and I think any viewer who's ever stumbled upon a TV crew or a film crew, they know that that's incredibly small. Um, 
yeah, we could really, the sky was the limit. We could do anything. And like I say, our access was so tremendous yeah. that almost everyone said, yes, sure, come tomorrow. That's yeah. fine. And uh, so, yeah, I miss that for sure. I do. Yeah. And then that's rare, too. Right? And you talk about that in the book, even like um, Pierre Burton, you know, just saying, come by tomorrow. And you have to yeah. organize a shoot at his house yeah. on 24 hours notice. And that's not something that happens. No. And there was a lot of that because we didn't have a lot of, uh, uh, we didn't have a built-in safety net. We always wanted the show to, even though it didn't have, like the segments themselves, they didn't have to be topical, but I wanted them to look like February. Yeah. You know, if it's February, I wanted people watching me on TV to go, oh, he's cold, man. Yeah. It's some cold <laughs> out, isn't it? So we had very little uh, safety net and uh, we flew really fast. So... We had to make up things on the fly, and shoots often happen really, really quick. Yeah. And why was it important for you in the book to sort of highlight those little stories behind some of these maybe most memorable sketches or most memorable guests? Well, anyone in show business, if they're sitting around and they start telling stories, they never tell stories about, oh, I did this show, the audience was great, and everything worked so well, and it was just a yeah. fantastic night. They don't tell that story. They tell the story of, like, I showed up, the audience was English as a second language, the light cue didn't happen, <laughs> you know, the audio guy was drunk, and they have this, they tell a horror story, yeah. and we all enjoy that. And so the same goes for, for me. I mean, I could talk about, uh, you know, one of the great shoots, say, with Rick Hansen, right. where... You know, I met this tremendous human being and he did this great shoot and beautiful British Columbia and everything went off like a hitch and he bungee jumped and it was great. That's a great story. But I could also say, well, I was going to take Jan Arden in a helicopter into a bat cave and I promised her it would be okay. And then, you know, the helicopter essentially crashed and, uh, you know, the segment never made it to air because it was never shot, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> Those are the stories you tell. Yeah. Yeah. Behind the scenes, those are the stories. Yeah. Cause, I mean, I was looking through, uh, obviously, aside from reading the book, reading, uh, watching some of the old clips, and just, again, just seeing you w in bed. I know I mentioned this before, but in bed next to Stephen Harper, reading you a story, just the public perception of Stephen Harper not being one who seems to be up for jokes. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, that... To me, I also think, like, you talk about your bucket list things, like, that seems like something nobody would ever even imagine that they would be doing at some point. Like, when you're a little kid, saying, like, oh, I'll be in bed at uh, 24 Sussex one day, and the Prime Minister will be reading me a, a good night story. No, no. Although, I always knew... I knew this show would work. The greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life was this hour's 22 minutes. I mean, I was part of the the team that created that show and there was only ever supposed to be six episodes and we watched the first pilot and I remember thinking this show will run forever like yeah. literally this could be on for the rest of my life yeah. so I did it for eight years it's still on uh, but when I created this show my partner and I Gerald Mons um, the same thing happened I didn't think it would run forever but I knew that Canadians would respond to it because it was the most unapologetically Canadian show that we could possibly imagine. So it was kind of like, imagine how Canadian it could be and then double it. Just <laughs> double down, always double down. And we created a universe. The writers found it very difficult uh, in the beginning because we created a universe where if the world was talking about, you know, Kim Kardashian, we were like, well, we're not talking about it. Right. In our world, that doesn't exist. In our world, we're going to Manitoba. Yeah. And there's a wheat festival. That's where we're going. <laughs> and we're talking about Ottawa. We're not talking about what's going on in the UK or what's going on in the States. We're not doing it. And uh, 
I knew people would respond, yeah. and it worked. In one of your last rants, you implored Canadians to go out and see the country, uh, see their own country, and even if they can't make it across the country, check out their own backyard mm -hmm. and, and learn about it and love it more. Um, for your perspective, traveling across the country, I know you mentioned before you haven't always had a chance to see everywhere you've been, but what have been some of your favorite travels across Canada? Oh, there, well, there's so many, and you got to be careful answering these questions. It's like people say, what's the worst place in Canada? Oh, <laughs> oh sure, I'll answer that. <laughs> well, not the worst or the best, but where have you enjoyed? Uh, or where, where might you recommend people go? Well, I would, you know, I would tell anyone if they ever, ever had the chance to stand above the tree line. Right. They should do it. Um, it's a tricky trip, but you know the culture shock you can experience in your own country is as great as the culture shock you'll experience going anywhere else in the world. Like going to Mumbai, right. from you know, it's uh, it's it's that different. Everything is different, and it, and it's just stunning, and it's beautiful, and it's your own country, and and it's so rarely reflected in pop culture or or anything really that most of us know absolutely nothing about it. And so that's an exciting trip always. Yeah. Obviously, I would tell everyone to go to Newfoundland. Of course. Because I'm from there. You know. Um, but uh, we're so lucky. I, I, you know, the more I traveled, the more uh, the landscape spoke to me. And uh, I realized how lucky I am. Most people, I mean, it's a very difficult country to travel in because it's expensive. Yeah. And we're just so big. And so I've been really lucky that it's been my job to do it. But uh, yeah, if anyone can, even a couple of hundred kilometers down the road can make a world of difference. Absolutely, and one, I love that on your show, you could go somewhere, it, it didn't have to be somewhere quote unquote glamorous, but you could go to a donkey sanctuary. Yeah. And, and it would be fun. Yeah. And places that people, maybe the rest of us, wouldn't necessarily think of going to explore within our own country. But oh you, sure, I'm, you know. constantly we would go somewhere and it would be in someone's backyard. Yeah. And they would be like, I didn't know we did that. I didn't know that happened here. <laughs> well, yeah. Right down the road. Yeah. We found it on the internet. Right. So what goals do you still have uh, for your career going forward? I don't have an immediate goal. Uh, I always had the one goal that was to get my own show. I wasn't mercenary about it and I was thrilled to be on 22 Minutes. but. Uh, that was always the end game. Like, wouldn't that be great? Right. You know, I had my own show. And then I got my own show and it worked. And if I wanted to do that now, I'd be doing year 16 because the show is still the show mm -hmm. I would, if I had to write out the perfect show for me, it would still be the same show. So I don't really know what's next or what the next goal is. But it doesn't have to be in prime time, which is interesting. I mean, if you, if you work in television, the goal is prime time. Of course, yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be prime time now. It could be whatever. Yeah. And plus, who knows if it's even going to involve television. I mean, right. everything is changing so fast. It's I don't think I'm going to study YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> it's always fascinating to me, like someone like yourself who has had this success, has sort of stepped away from this one project uh, still at a young age. Um, does it... Is it a relief to know that you've, you've made your name and so maybe your next project, whatever it is, if it's not in prime time, it, you know, you don't have to worry about proving yourself or, or does it add more pressure given that you are who you are and people expect a certain level? I don't think it adds pressure. I think it probably makes things a little bit easier to get a project made. Right, I think right. in this country it's really hard to get a project made and uh, I guess I could uh, at least 
whatever it is I do next, I could probably get the meeting anyway. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's good. You know, there's kind of a, there's, there's this Canadian thing in show business where they kind of don't want the person's name in the title because then the brand might get too big. And, uh, and so people know my name. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to bust through that. Yeah, no, I bet. And I remember uh, reading in your book how you mentioned that you took Monday out of the title. And, or you put it in there to try to stay on Mondays and then yeah, they put you yeah. on Tuesdays. So I guess there's... Yeah, and I've always put my name in the title. The very first one-man show we ever did was at the National Arts Center. And it was just in a small theater at the National Arts Center. And I was like 19 years old. And uh, it was called Rick Mercer's Show Me the Button, I'll Push It, or Charles Lynch Must Die. And they said, um, we don't put the author's name above the title. <laughs> at the National Arts <laughs> Center. Like, it's a policy. And there I was, 19 years old, I was like, well, my name's going above the title. I'd never even done anything before. And then, so then we made the argument, that is the title. So, it's the title. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know where I got off doing that, but we just always did that. You know, at 22 minutes, we weren't allowed to use our real names. Right. That was, like, we had to make up fake names. Yeah. Because the idea was like, yeah, and then because if, if you get too cocky, we can get rid of you, I guess. But yes, it was, yeah. it's kind of the way radio stations used to work in the in the fifties, you know. <laughs> so I mean, they use their own names on Twenty Two Minutes now. But. Yeah, that's funny. Um, lastly, for people who pick up this book and uh, sort of relive the rants and, and the times and, and the episodes through the rants that they watched, what do you hope they take from uh, from Final Report? Well, I hope they have a good time reading it. I think it's funny. Um, I don't think there's, uh, uh, you know, I think it's really, I think being self-deprecating is a great character trait, and I think it's a good trait in a country as well. And, uh, you know, I love my subject matter, which by and large is Canada, but I don't take everything so serious. And uh, I think, um, you know, we have a, a, a great ability to make fun of ourselves or not to take ourselves too seriously. And I think that's reflected in the book, and I think Canadians are like that, by and large. And the great thing about the rants is they're short, so if you don't like one, yeah. <laughs> there's another one. There's another one. He's, uh, he's a blast. He's like exactly what you expect him to be, on camera and off. Yeah. My favorite part of meeting him was when uh, he made fun of Mike for the way Mike holds a hammer. So Rick Mercer was talking about how he's building a cabin. And Mike told him, oh, yeah, like you're hammering it yourself. But the way he held it, it was like, I don't know, Mike, you held it with like your thumb? <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. It was the thing. way I mimed it. I didn't even move my yeah. forearm. It was just the wrist yeah, and the hand move. Mike's wrist. And, and Rick, Rick Mercer said to him, um, no, I'm not hammering it. And it looks to me, it looks like you've never held a hammer yourself either. <laughs> <laughs> burn, Rick Mercer, burn right in your face. I feel it. <laughs> so funny. It's sort of like an initiation, I feel yeah, like, in time. Canadian media to have Rick Mercer tear you down. Uh, this is also a, a huge disappointment, I'm sure, to my father who taught woodworking <laughs> for like 30 years <laughs> as a teacher in Toronto, including me. I was in his class. I only got a B, so <gasps> that's probably why. Well, it wasn't shop, uh, right? So it was, yeah. It was shop, yeah. I'm, it was shop? Yeah, he taught shop, cl shop class, yeah. <laughs> Which is woodworking, yeah. And I, and I had to be, I was in his class one year and, and I only got a B. And he said he gave me the B so my mother wouldn't get angry because it should have been less. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So so you don't like, uh, you didn't follow in dad's footsteps. I didn't think I was doing so badly. I got a, an A in home ec and I scraped by in shop. But clearly, as Rick Mercer pointed out, 
There's probably a reason I didn't do so well Mike, in Mike, you'd chop. be my favorite son. You know, I love that. You <laughs> could cook at least. Yeah, I can make you pancakes, killer pancakes. <laughs> That's a real skill, Mike, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> so back to Rick. Rick was great. Um, he's traveled this whole country. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, and he's still traveling and now doing uh, – well, by the time you hear this, he, I don't know what point of his book tour he'll be a part of or, or maybe he'll have wrapped up because the book will be out by the time you hear this. But, um, yeah, he's been everywhere, and, I mean – He's in a pretty cool position right now. He's got his legacy and he's got his sort of place in Canadian culture. And and I would imagine the world's his oyster, you know, going forward. Like, just choose whatever you want to do and and pursue it. He's already made his name and proven himself. I was so happy to hear him talk about how uh, their number one goal was always to keep it Canadian. And not try and be like an American program or even a British program, which some can even shows do try and emulate as well. You're absolutely right. And that's what I was saying in the interview. Like there's an episode with him and Jan Arden where they go to a donkey sanctuary. (laughs) And it's like, can you imagine a friend of yours saying, you want to come with me to this donkey sanctuary? Like, what are you talking? Are you crazy? Like, no, I don't want to go to this donkey sanctuary. I would. Okay, well, maybe (laughs) you're the one calling and I'm the one saying, what are you, crazy? I don't want to go to this thing. It's, uh, but he made it fun and he made it interesting. And that was like the charm of that show to me is that he could take these everyday Canadian things that don't seem flashy or exciting and make them fun and and interesting. And who knows, maybe after that, you do want to go to check out the Donkey Sanctuary. I hope he does another show, man. I really do. 15 years is a long time to do a show. Yeah, sure is. And 15 years from now, maybe you and I will be... uh, we got to hang this up. Oh, really? That long <laughs> I got to do it with you? Oh, man. Save me. Um, so the final report is uh, is on newsstands now. Newsstands? Bookshelves. Bookshelves. Bookstores. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Did I mention I was on cold medication yeah, today? I don't quite have an excuse. Bit. I'm just... I'm You're just loopy. you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's available cool. now. Anywhere books are sold. Okay. Well, Mike, great interview as always. Thanks, Gina. Thanks, Rick Mercer, of course, and everyone listening. And we'll see you next time on Ages and Icons. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.